Back in the uh, early days of Mueller, back in the 90s, I was teaching a year nine biblical studies class and we were working our way through the book of Samuel and we covered the, the, uh, the, the space there um, where Saul went to meet the witch in a cave at Endor. And it was a pivotal point for Saul and his kingdom. In those days, I used to do a little Bib Studies exam. And so I had this question that I'd written down, and, and it's worth saying that in the NIV, that a witch, the English word that's used, they use the word medium. So the question I asked was, what type of woman did Saul meet in the cave at Endor? Now, young year nine student, she came back and she wrote, a medium-sized woman. <laughs> and I looked at that answer and I thought, I failed as a teacher. <laughs> what did she make of that story? Saul was being punished by God because he's hanging out with a medium-sized woman and not a large one or a small one? See, the reality was she just completely and utterly missed the point just because of her understanding of that word. Let me go back to my teen years, back to the 70s. I have two books in my hand. There'd be some who may be familiar with them. This one is called a Believer's Hymn Book. This one is called a Scripture and Song Book, Chorus Book. There was considerable angst in the church that I grew up with and grew up in that were using this, but people were wanting to introduce this. And it actually became a bun fight. A bun fight over two tools that are supposed to help us worship. In fact, one gentleman said, if we introduce this, I will leave the church. Funny enough, he went down to what was called the over 50s camp, which when I was a teenager, that sounded like a really old person's camp. Must have been full of young people now that I think about it. And they use this book down there at the over 50s camp and he comes back and he declares, do you know what, the songs in here are scripture. It's sort of one of those moments where you go, miss the point. Miss the point of worship. And two little tools caused all this angst. And you know what? These were sincere and genuine people. And they thought they were being devoted to God. They felt there was a right way to worship and they were being faithful to that. However, they missed the point. It was not about the tool that was used to assist our corporate worship but who the worship was being directed to. 
And sadly, some of my peers walked away from their faith and from church. Is it possible that in our pursuit of our devotion to God that we can miss the point of who our devotion is to? This morning we're going to be continuing in our sort of three-part series through Matthew 11 and 12. Uh, Josh has already read Matthew 12, 1 to 14, and we're going to consider this collision. It really was a collision. Last week, I guess, was a collision between our expectations and reality. But this week is a collision between the Pharisees and Jesus in terms of what each thought it meant to be truly devoted to God. What does it mean to be truly devoted to God? How did the Pharisees answer that question? How would you answer that question? How would you measure it? How do we even determine it? And in this passage, as we go through it, we'll find that the issue centred around what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And I think what we should be able to do is determine two pathways to what was considered devotion to God. Pathway one, the Pharisees, their devotion to God was to follow the rules. Pathway two, Jesus would show that devotion to God comes from the heart. A heart that's in relationship with him and from that place flows mercy to others. You see, the Pharisees missed the point. And McCoy makes this really significant comment and he said, there is something worse than missing the point. And that is missing the point so badly that you begin to see the point as the problem. And the Pharisees completely missed the point. And in fact, the point, Jesus himself would become the problem. Jesus would, in this passage, will make a number of claims about his identity and his authority. And he said that God is more interested in our hearts than any external man-made measures of devotion. Lord, we come before you this morning. And this passage is a challenge. It's a challenge in terms of what was taking place. And it's a challenge to us. And so I pray, Lord, that you will speak, that you will speak to us and that the things that I say may be immersed in your grace in terms of the things that need to be said. And we pray, as the verse finished last week in chapter 11, Lord, that we would have ears to hear what you would have to say. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Just consider these 14 verses as if it was an incident report and it's laid out in two sections, uh, as if it was being reported in the newspaper. There was the grain field incident and we'll see that there uh, in the first eight verses there that there's this report that was made and it came with an accusation. And then we'll see that there's an answer to that. Then we're going to see that there's a synagogue incident and there was a report that came there with a question. And we're going to see an answer and a response and a miracle. 
Uh, chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. I think I've just got to park there for a little minute, a little bit and just unpack two things out of uh, before we start to get any further. The first one is the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? We know them in terms of the Gospels and so on and, uh, and they're put out there as a part of uh, who would ultimately become the enemies of Jesus along with the, the Sadducees and so on. Uh, but who were the Pharisees? They emerged at about 150 BC. Uh, Israel's in the middle of a, 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 a revolt against uh, the rulers and so on at that time. But this is what they held to. They were conservative. They were believed in the one God of Israel because the surrounding nations there were uh, polytheistic. They advocated a God-centred life, but that God-centred life needed to be applied to all aspects of their life. And they were determined to protect Israel from being compromised and absorbed into the Gentile word, world. Remember, coming out of the exile, in a sense, Israel had learned its lesson and the Pharisees, as they emerged, didn't want to go back to the things that put Israel into the exile. They also believed that the future, Israel's future depended on whether Israel honoured and practised the law of God. They, they got it in a sense of the events that had led up to the exile and the punishment that Israel was in. They didn't want to repeat that again. But I'll tell you what they did. They struggled with the law and they struggled with how the law was to be applied to the smallest details in life. Matthew 15, 19, uh, verse 9, Jesus says, that, Of the Pharisees, though, they worship me in vain and their teachings are mere human rules. You see, what they'd done is they'd set up these boundary markers around as if the, here's the faith and the law and so on, God's, the integrity of God's law was here and they set up this boundary to protect the law of God. As it were, they set up these guardrails as a safety barrier so people wouldn't step outside and disobey the law. And these boundary markers were, and they had three that they were particularly interested in. They were interested in the boundary marker of circumcision, which was uh, a, a trait of the Jewish people. They were interested in a boundary marker over here on the dietary laws and what they could eat and couldn't eat. Then they had a boundary marker that was set up over here that was on the Sabbath. And so they set up this guardrail. In fact, the picture I've got in my mind is what they ended up doing was building a Besser block wall and built them in, built, them, built themselves inside it so that people couldn't get out, as it were, and people couldn't get in. You were either in or you were out. And these boundary markers were features, what they identified, those who were in. And the level that those rules were kept then determined to be a measure of your devotion to God. You get that? The measure that those rules were kept were then determined to be a measure of God. That's the Pharisees. The Sabbath. 
Well, Exodus 20, verse 8, right there in the middle of the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. The Lord gave Israel the Sabbath, a day of rest, a day of worship. If you were to go to modern day Israel today, you will go into certain hotels and you will come across what is called a Sabbath lift. And because pushing the buttons on each floor of the hotel on the Sabbath is considered work, then you will stop at every floor. You have no control over, it'll just stop at every floor so that you don't have to push the buttons because that's been defined as work. In fact, you can go onto an Orthodox Jewish site even now and you'll find that there are 39 categories called the Malakos table, it should be up there, of what Sabbath was what was prohibited on the Sabbath. And it was these 39 laws or rules coming out of their oral law that formed the structure for the Pharisees. Now, one of the things that it's often reflected back to me is that I speak too fast. I'm going to speak real fast. So hang on for the ride. Here they are. Carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, ploughing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, warping, weaving, unravelling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, marking. There they are. There's the 39 rules that were the laws of what was prohibited to do on the Sabbath. And if you go to an Orthodox site, even uh, a current one, you'll find that every one of those then is broken down into a further explanation. You get it? It's important we understand that because this is what's happening in this passage. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and get, get a hold of this picket. And they pick it literally, and they began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. What was happening? They were harvesting. When the Pharisees saw this, it's funny the Pharisees are just there. How come they're there? These guys are just walking through a field. The Pharisees just happened to be there. When they saw this, they said, "Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful, unlawful on the Sabbath." Ha <laughs> ha! We got you. Look what your disciples are doing, Jesus. This passage is integral in seeing this pivot, this change in now the opposition really starting to emerge in terms of Jesus. And they are looking, they are looking, they are pressing, they are questioning what is going on with Jesus and the disciples. They caught him out. It's unlawful. You see, Deuteronomy 23, 24 and 25 though allows the poor to work, along, work around the outside of a field and to be able to take uh, grain and so on for, um, for food. So this wasn't unlawful because it was illegal and they were stealing. The issue was that they picked some grain on the Sabbath. That is referred to reaping. And they're probably harvesting. 
Actually, there's probably a few things you could get out of that because I probably rubbed it together. You see what's happening here? It's the letter of the law. And because of this extensive structure that had been set out, these guys were looking, the Pharisees were looking out and accused, made this accusation, this report against Jesus and what they were doing on the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees were self-appointed watchmen on their own boundary markers. So they set up the boundary markers and then they set themselves up as the watchmen for those boundary markers. There's a wonderful dialogue here. You don't see angst in Jesus. You don't see some of the stuff that how if I was in a situation how I'd be going for this. But I'll tell you what, he speaks and he delivers truth. And I want you to observe how often he keeps referring to the scriptures. And he answered... Look what he answered. Haven't you read? Well, that's a crack up, that is. Haven't you read? You see, these Pharisees, a lot of them had actually learnt the five books of the Bible. In fact, some of them had learnt the whole of the Old Testament. And he says to them, haven't you read? <laughs> They'd memorised it. Haven't you read what David did and his companions when they were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companion ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Haven't you read? That's great. That, that's, that's, that's a great line. And, uh, and Jesus is challenging them in terms of he's starting to unlay this, uh, this pattern of you guys have missed the point. You've missed the point. You have totally missed the point. It's there in the scriptures. We've got this account of David and his men eating bread that was consecrated there in 1 Samuel uh, 21. Jesus is not condemning that. Or he's not condoning it. They, they had done the wrong thing by the law, but he's pointing out the inconsistencies of the Pharisees. David's their hero. But I don't hear you calling him out because he did that. He wasn't judged for it. Okay, so hold that point. Jesus goes on. Or haven't you read the law? Okay, so he's referred back to the historical books, King David and so on, 1 Samuel. He's now going back to the law. This is probably what a lot of them had actually memorised. Haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? He says again, haven't you read? Guys, get back to the book. It's all there. The work of the temple had priority over keeping the Sabbath. These guys are working on the Sabbath. Now, you may consider Sunday your rest day, but the reality is I'm working. This is part of my role as a pastor. But that's not called into question at all. In fact, to the, to the priest, they were doing double sacrifices there on the Sabbath, but there is no issue there as well. And then Jesus comes up with this incredible line, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. The temple was everything to Israel, both in the past and in the time of Jesus with the one that Herod had rebuilt. And in fact, if you were to go to the temple site mount today, the Orthodox Jew has a guide, a printed guide, that has the location of Herod's temple and where it would have been in relation to the temple mount and how they are to work their way around the temple mount so they don't inadvertently cross through where the Holy of Holies would have been. The temple was everything. And Jesus to declare that the presence of one who was in the temple is now 
amongst them. Remember, God was the cloud and the fire in the wilderness. His presence rested above uh, the ark uh, at the mercy seat, uh, symbolic there in the, in the holy of holies. And now he was among them, Emmanuel, God with us. Here it is. They missed the key point. God was with them. He had dwelt with them in the past in various ways and so on. He is in person and he is before them. And then he says, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy and sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus quotes from the prophets now, goes back to Hosea 6, verse 6, and look what he says. What God wants is mercy. What he wants is compassion. And this principle is the pivot for this whole passage. What happened to the Pharisees was that in their misdirected devotion to God, they had constructed this burdensome structure of man-made rules that did not have any basis in Scripture that became the platform for their self-righteous condemnation by which they measured everybody else. I will read that again. What happened to the Pharisees was that in their misdirected devotion to God, they had constructed this burdensome structure of a man of man-made rules that had no basis in Scripture that became the platform for their own self-righteousness and the condemnation for those uh, who they measured. Uh, against and in doing so they not only lost their heart for God but also compassion for his people. Jesus then sets the record straight in terms of both his identity and um, his identity and his authority and he says in verse 8 if you know what, the, what these words meant I desire mercy not sacrifice you would not have condemned the innocent that's the disciples. In verse 8 he says for the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, before them was the creator of the world who spoke and it came into being and rest was given as a gift to his people so they could worship and respond to God and the Lord of the Sabbath was amongst them. Missed the point. We didn't do it because we haven't had time going through the passage, passages, but at the end of Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, Jesus actually repositions this whole concept of rest and he declares that it's not found in a special day, it's actually found in him. And he says, come to me, come to me. You see, if you took out chapter 12, the marker there, these verses read straight into this next passage and it's almost like it's being set up. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You see, rest was going to be repositioned from a day to a relationship. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls and join that yoke with me. It is easy and my burden is light because the burden that these Pharisees had done was heavy and unachievable. I think there's a principle there. God's laws are meant for our good. Secondly, the synagogue incident going on from that place, he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there look for, looking for a reason, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They don't make an accusation this time. Uh, they put it out there as a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Yes or no? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Some people think that Jesus actually jettisoned rules and rituals. But here we find him coming to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He didn't jettison them. 
We've just had communion together. That's a ritual, if you would call it that, uh, and, and, and that's appropriate. He didn't jettison them. But these Pharisees, probably stung by Jesus as response to their previous accusation, they now set him up. They set him up with a question, maybe trying to force him into this yes-no response so that they can condemn him publicly. Verse 11, he said to them, Okay, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath and you, and, and you not take hold of it, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Ha, Jesus, the master teacher. I did a book on that, looking at Jesus as the master teacher. He's the master teacher. He takes their yes-no question and he turns it into a public poll. They all knew that they would not leave a bleating sheep stuck for the day and out of compassion would rescue it, despite it being the Sabbath. How much more would you not do that for a person? His logic is impeccable and he keeps calling them out. But I'll tell you what, the tension is mounting. We have a standoff here, the Pharisees, experts in the law and Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. And our principle there is it's always lawful to do good. It always is. And look at this, verse 13, they said to the man, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. In four words, Jesus moved from the hypothetical to the practical. And here's the final matter in, of authority in all manners of doctrine and practice. The argument was over. The man-made legalistic structure that was set up by the Pharisees was now being dismantled. Four powerful words, stretch out your hand. And do you know what? A miracle took place there. This guy's withered, paralysed hand, whatever it was, was stretched out and it was made whole and complete again. A miracle took place. But I'll tell you what, the next verse exposes their heart. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Luke says they were filled with rage. And despite this miracle occurring in front of them, Jesus had, had challenged their power, he challenged their position, he challenged their authority, and they totally missed the point. Missed the point, and their hearts were murderous. How did it end up like that? These were God-fearing, Bible-memorising, purity-focused, devoted followers of God, and they totally missed the point. And they became bullies who enforced the excessive and oppressive rules around circumcision, dietary laws and the Sabbath. Come back to the question from the beginning. What does it mean to be truly devoted to God? So here's the big idea. Last week we threw it up at the beginning of the service. True devotion to God is not found in rule keeping, but in relationship with God that results in mercy and grace towards other. True devotion is not found in the legalism of the Pharisees, but in relationship with the Lord of the Sabbath. 
The Pharisees measured devotion by allegiance to their external man-made rules, which made them judgmental, self-righteous, and brought con condemnation on all those who strayed outside their own boundaries. But you know what? Jesus measures devotion by what comes out of the heart. Compassion, humility, grace. And Paul says in Romans 8, 1, we are no longer, no, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't live under the condemnation of the law because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. All right, let me try and just draw it back a little bit. Are we at risk of behaving like the Pharisees? I'm not necessarily talking about their murderous intent. But are we at risk of behaving like them? Hmm. Yes, we are. Adam and Eve, Cain, Israel at Mount Sinai, Saul, all attempted to adjust their relationship with God on their terms. And it's been part of our fallen human condition to manufacture our devotion to God and then measure it by devotions, uh, our devotion by externals. And you know what? That's what religion does. Generally, and that's what legalism does within the Christian faith. And we are just susceptible to it today as it was in the time of the Pharisees. You know, my heart, my heart goes out to those of my generation who were raised in legalistic homes and churches. And my peers and my friends, some of, who walked away from faith because of the rules and regulations that often had little to do with the Bible or Christian morality. And some of the stories are sad. How does that happen? These parents and churches were God-fearing, Bible-memorising, purity-focused, devoted followers of God, but they missed the point. Enforcing rules around clothing, music, activities on Sunday, hair length, songbooks, Bible versions, and the list goes on. And often enforced without compassion, grace, and humility. So how does that happen? Well, here's one reason I just want us to briefly look at. It's a document that I put together to come from another church that I do with our newcomers. At the heart of this, the one reason I want to give is, like the Pharisees, these people were unable to discern between God's instructions and their own convictions. Do you know what? The Bible does have commands. There are things that we should and shouldn't do. There are lists of things that we shouldn't and, should and shouldn't do, embrace or avoid. They are part of God's inspired word to us and we need to be aware of that. But then there are other instructions that come from people's preferences, their opinions, their personal experiences, and they've been aligned as if they have come from God's word. So here's this chart up here. Let me just have a quick uh, run through it with you just to give some explanation. On the far left-hand side there is Christian conviction. Okay, biblical convictions. The Trinity, the deity and humanity of Christ. Last week I had two visitors come to my door representing a particular group that, that this was their issue. They don't believe Jesus is God. And in the history of the church is 
that if there's going to be a battle, you go to battle for these doctrines. These are in our statement of faith. These are not going to adjust. These are not going to change. These are at the heart of our scriptures in terms of who we believe God is and who Jesus is. And I said to them, we are on a completely different track. And as a pastor of the church down the road, we have no common conversation. And they said, do you know the Lord's Prayer? I said, that's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. So, we battle for that. Because that's the heart of the Christian faith. Then the next one is church convictions. And they are convictions that we believe as a church that we adhere to. We, we, we've done communion this morning. We did communion last week. We did communion the week before. But there are other churches in proximity here would do it less regularly. Now, each can provide some biblical support from that, but under the leadership of the elders, because we're an elder-led church and so on, and then we believe for this church and the meeting together here, we will practice these convictions. And they are convictions that sit in our church. And on some of these things, we have to agree to disagree. They are done differently in other churches around about us. And not necessarily going to go to the stake over it, go to the wall over it. But look at the third one. There's personal convictions. And they are part of my experiences of life and my journey and my understanding of God, I have these convictions that have been established in my life that I believe are consistent with the Bible, but they're my convictions. And they may be different, some of them, from my wife. They may be different from my kids. But these are personal convictions, and we need to have convictions. We can't have people that are just flopping around everywhere. But these might be convictions about some of the things that I've got listed there, and you can add more there if you want. You want to put vax and anti-vax? You want to put yes vote, no vote? You see, they are things that we can, will and should have personal convictions on. But what happens when we come together with those convictions? Well, Paul gives us Romans chapter 14. He said we're not to judge each other in those spaces and I know with the vax and no vax that that, is, that has been a significant issue that's fractured families and uh, split churches and those sort of things there. But Paul says on these personal convictions they shouldn't be doing that. Be careful how you judge but also be careful you don't stumble. And Galatians 5.1 says we have freedom in Christ. And I have convictions. Some of my convictions come out of my culture because when I go to Cambodia I see a different range of convictions that people have. And then the fourth one there is personal preferences. The things that relate to what I like and what I prefer. The problem I said is they're unable to discern the Pharisees and some of those from the generation I grew up in were unable to discern between God's instruction, as it were, the first two, and, uh, and, uh, and our own convictions. And what happens is they move those convictions across into square two, and sometimes try and get them across into square one. The unfortunate thing was that with some of these personal convictions and preferences, they were asserted, when they were asserted, it was done with a tendency to control others, lacking grace and was discouraging, and there was a fear of disapproval of others. Is this challenging what I'm saying? I prayed this morning that this message would be immersed in God's grace. Because it needs to be. 
but we do need to be challenged. How do I avoid myself the error of the Pharisees? Have I been able to discern between God's instructions and my own personal convictions and preferences? That's one question. The second one then is, one way that is evident in terms of true devotion to God is my heart response in those situations. Am I becoming an agent of mercy and grace? Do I look for opportunities to affirm and encourage others? True devotion to God is not found in rule keeping, but in relationship with God that results in mercy and grace towards others. If we miss that, we miss everything. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 says, and Jesus extends to all of us an invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's the heart of the relationship. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Lord, we would just pray that you would take these words and that these words would bring encouragement to us, that they would bring challenge to us, And that, Lord, our rest will be ultimately found in a relationship with you. Sure, we've got structures and forms and patterns in terms of the way that we do stuff. But, Lord, our our ultimate goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that's demonstrated in what comes out of our heart. And it should be compassion and grace. We pray for your Holy Spirit to enact in all of our lives Today and this coming week, we pray in your name. Amen.